Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Before I uh, get into the message, I thought I'd share just a little bit of our trip over to see Jacob's few observations that we are things that stood out to us on the trip. His the church that Jacob leads out in. I was going to say Jacob's church, but it isn't Jacob's church. The church he leads out in is one of seven at the at the mission there in Kisumu, and we went to church with him on Sunday. We got there on Friday and just spent the day with them Saturday. Went to church with them on Sunday, and it was it really impressed me. the The culture is so different from anything here, just totally different. You, on so many levels, we can't relate to their way of life. And yet there was something when we went to church with them being with other believers and genuine godly people, you could feel at home. It's hard to explain the the difference of being in the just out in the community and in the culture and feeling very, very strange. But going to church with them, even though we didn't understand the language, it was all in their native language. You could feel at home with them. It was, the, I guess, the power of God and the presence of God in the lives there that just could make you feel at home. And the, the realness of their Christianity stood out to us as well. Um, one in particular, and I don't even know his name, he didn't attend the church where Jacob leads. It wasn't, Jacob didn't even know his name. But we ran into this man and his wife in one of the markets. We were walking. Julie and I were gawking. And all of a sudden, this man and his wife were there walking towards us. And you could tell just by looking at them. They were on fire for God. He just had a glow in his, in his face his eyes just lit up, and then I noticed his wife, and she had a plain cape dress on and a, a white veiling, which doesn't stand out as much there because almost all the ladies have a covering of some kind. I don't know. It's not even a religious symbol, I don't think. It's just a lot of the ladies do. So she didn't even stand out as looking different like, like you do here. But... Just the glow in their eyes, and and then I got thinking back of some of the other families we had met that uh, attend the church there. Just it's encouraging to see it. Many times we would, as we were talking to them, some of them spoke English fairly well, and they'd always ask, "How are you enjoying your time here?" And we said, "We're enjoying it." And then they just several of them would say, "This is." This is how we live. This is who we are. Not ashamed of their their poverty, I guess, or the way they live. They just said, welcome to Kenya. This is who we are. This is how we live. Um, just make yourself at home. Making the most of their situation. And many of them said, when you go back home, you tell your church, hello from us. They don't have a clue who you are. But they send their, many of them sent their greetings. On one day we visited with, or 
Jacob and sometimes Janice goes with him two or three days a week. And they visit people in the church. There's many widows, old, older widows. And he visits the families. He visits people that are would like to be part of the church. He visits people that at one point were part of the church. Um, and we went with them one day, and that was a full day. We went to, was it five, five or six homes? And going back several maybe a month, a month or so ago, Jacob emailed Claire and said, there's a widow lady here who has, she has nothing. And the church was getting together to help build her a house. And they don't really have that much to pool together to help build her a house. And these houses are, uh, of all the houses we were in, they're, they're mud, mud huts with tin roofs. That's what their houses are. And they they got together and they put pooled their what little resources they had and they built most of this house. Then Jacob emailed Claire and said, we're a little bit short of money. Do you think you could help us? We need 160 U.S. dollars. And we didn't think that was necessary to take to a men's meeting. So he sent $200 cash along with us from you. And we went and gave it to Jacob to finish this house and we went to visit that lady that was interesting to see her house some of her grandchildren live with her brand new house and it was maybe 15 feet square two rooms um, dirt floor maybe a one window I think in it and she was happy she was just thrilled with this House. We went, Jacob said we were going to come visit her, and she went over to Janice and kind of whispered. She says, She doesn't have anything to feed us. She doesn't even have the money to buy the food to feed us. And she said, Well, that's all right. She'll bring, bring some food along. And we got there, and she had scrounged something up and fed us what little she had. Visited a few other people in the church. There was some families we went to visit as well. But Jacobs are fitting in very amazingly well. I commend them. I, I don't know if I could do what they're doing. The way he fits in. And I went with him to run errands through the day. And we were driving down the street, which is another thing I don't think I could do. Uh, just crazy. Amazing, the driving. And we were driving, or whatever you would call it, down the road and... Or walking down the sidewalk and people would yell at him in their language and he'd recognize them and talk to them and and he'd see somebody else and he'd talk to them and go into a a little shop or a hardware store and they knew him and he'd talk to them about whatever, just invite him to, to, inviting him to church and he knew a lot of people just along the street. He he spent spends a lot of time just talking to them and getting to know them. And uh, one interesting one was we went into town on his little motorcycle and parked it. And all of a sudden he just, he groaned. He said, oh no, didn't know what. And this man came across the street and they talked, kind of made small talk for a while. And then this, the man, he sort of, he knew English enough to tell me that he wanted to talk to Jacob alone. 
So I said, well, that's fine. And I walked off a little ways and just kept my eye on where he was because I depended on Jacob for everything. I didn't even take my wallet with me anywhere. I said, if, I'm gonna, if I need to buy something, I'm going to be with you anyway. So I just kind of wandered off and uh, they talked for a little while. And then Jacob said how, when they were done, he said how this, this guy is just as slick as can be. He, he brings out these sob stories of how, and it's a new story every time, how he needs money and how he, if you don't give him money, he just can't, we can't be friends anymore. And Jacob said, well, come to church, show some interest and we'll see if we can help you. And well, he can't do, he can't be friends if he can't give him money. And it's just, and he was comparing notes with the other missionaries as well. And they, the same man goes after each one of them for money and they're getting wise to his tactics now. But they're they're praying for him, hoping that he will show some interest in coming to church. But thank you for your prayers and your help for our family while we were gone. When we got back, I was going through the mail that had piled up. And I got a letter from the Sawyer County Clerk of Court. And I opened it up and informed me that I had been randomly selected to for a term of jury duty. From December 1st to December 31st, there were three trial dates in there. It informed me that it is not only mandatory, but it is a very important civic responsibility. How many of you have received a jury summons? Raise your hand. Many of you. How did it make you feel? I think we're kind of filled with uh, dread, maybe would be the word. I guess, I'm not sure if it's to my shame or, or how it is, but that's what I, how I was feeling. And then I was, why is that? Why do I feel that way? And I don't know if it's because of the inconvenience to my day that it, it could potentially cause. Or is it because I need to go in and explain our position on jury duty? And I have to wonder if it's maybe because we, we understand the position we take, or we know the position we take, but we don't maybe know why we take that position. And we're afraid and maybe, maybe a little ashamed, or we're afraid of what they're going to think when we explain it. So I went into the clerk of court and I explained, requested to be excused, and I assumed they would say this, and they did. No, you'll need to come in on those days that you were selected to come in. But is it the inconvenience that we're afraid of? Is it that we don't understand why we take the position we do of not serving on a jury? None of those are good reasons to dread it, I don't think. But how should we as Christians respond to a jury summons? We know how we should respond, but do we know why we should respond that way? How we should respond, I think we would understand as we would ask to be excused for 
religious convictions or religious reasons. But what exactly are those religious convictions that we claim to have? This morning I'd like to look at why we hold the position we do regarding serving on a jury. And to find these answers, I'd like to look at what the Bible says and then look at the example of Jesus and see if we can come up with a little bit stronger in our minds why we hold to this position that we do. The very foundation of our position comes from our understanding of the two-kingdom concept. First of all, we look at the kingdom of heaven. When we were baptized, when you were baptized, it's a public commitment that you are going to follow Jesus. Your allegiance is now 100% with him. And one of the things that you said, I do or I am, you affirmed, is that you will renounce the world. Did you realize that? You said you will renounce the world. We turn our allegiance from the world to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is real. It is a real kingdom. Nobody here can deny that the kingdom of the world is real. We live in it. We work in it. We rub shoulders with it all day long. But it's a little bit more difficult for us to understand and to accept that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is just as real. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior and continue in his word, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God cannot be viewed as something abstract, something out there that we believe in when it's convenient, like a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening or when we're feeling holy or something. That can't be how the kingdom of God is. It has to be a reality in your life. All our choices... Everything we do comes from that premise that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. It's a set of standards or values or set of principles that we use to govern our actions and our life. Jesus made it very clear that the kingdom of God is very different from the kingdom of the world. In John 18.36, he's standing before Pilate and he answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. He's showing the difference. He's saying, if my kingdom, if the kingdom of God was of this world, I'd fight and I would win. But it's not. He's saying, my kingdom is not of this world. Repentance, confession, and a new birth is what is necessary to be part of this kingdom of God. The purpose of the church or the purpose of the kingdom of God is this, to serve God and glorify him, to fulfill the great commission of going to all peoples to make disciples, baptizing and teaching. And thirdly, it is to administer the church according to the word of God, maintaining its purity. That is the purpose of the church or the purpose of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of the world, on the other hand, is the civil earthly government, the civil government, the state. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13.
Paul gives a very good description here of the civil government or the kingdom of this world. Romans 13, I'll read the first six verses. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Stop reading there. God ordained the purpose of the state, and that is to minister or to serve the law-abiding element of society, to create a fear of evildoing, and to punish the evildoer. That's the purpose of the state or of the, the kingdom of the world. And there are those who try to combine these two kingdoms. And this can be confusing if we don't recognize the difference between God's standard for his people in the Old Testament and his standard for the New Testament church. We have the kingdom of the world over here and the kingdom of God over here. And people try to put these together And that can be confusing if you don't understand the role of God's people in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the the nation of Israel was a theocracy, meaning God is the head of everything. The law in the Old Testament gave directions for civil law, gave directions for social life, it gave spiritual direction, it gave... Direction for every area of life. Civil law, spirituality, everything. It told you how to worship, how to build the tabernacle, and how to worship, how to come before God. And it also told you how to deal with, with uh, how to punish somebody who killed their neighbor. That same law. A person became part of the nation of Israel if their parents were. That's how you were became an Israelite or a, the children of Israel. If your dad or your mom were a Israelite, then you were one. Jesus came to fulfill this law and to establish a new order. And a person comes becomes part of this new order or the New Testament or the kingdom of God. Also by birth, but it's by a spiritual rebirth, a rebirth experience. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went from village to village and it says preaching the kingdom of God. And part of that kingdom of God, I think, is the Sermon on the Mount, 
where at least six times Jesus said this or some variation of it. He said, ye have heard that it hath been said. And then he would give part of the Old Testament law. Then as a fulfillment, Jesus would then give, and not an addition, but a fulfillment of it, which was a much higher standard for us to follow. He A much more demanding law, dealing with not just the symptoms or what had happened, but dealing with the heart of an issue. Example, he, the, the Old Testament said, thou shalt not kill. The much more demanding law that Jesus gave is, even if you hate your brother, hatred is the same as killing. So he's dealing with the heart issue. So this new kingdom that Jesus brought needs to take first place in the life of the Christian. We have allegiance to that. So we see the kingdom of God on one side, the kingdom of the world on the other, and the Old Testament teaching in the middle as sort of a combination of both. Now think, think about this. Is it not inconsistent for us to live under the law of grace, accepting the salvation that Jesus offers us through the kingdom of God? If we live under that accepting salvation while using the principles of the Old Testament to defend our involvement with civil government. That's inconsistent. Because that Old Testament law isn't, is fulfilled in Jesus. There's just the two, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. If we live in this one while claiming the principles of the Old Testament to defend our position, that doesn't work. We, you can't mix these two. When we think of jury duty, we think of the word judgment. And many Christians use either really like or dislike the word judgment. And we use the word judgment as a trump card to avoid any kind of confrontation. We say, well, you're judging, or don't judge me, or judgment. Usually our first thought when it comes to judging is Matthew 7. Turn quickly to Matthew 7, the first two verses. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Judge not, that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. This scripture could be used for a supporting scripture in seeking an exemption from jury duty, but I would hesitate to use it as a basis for a conviction. This Judge not that ye be not judged. The setting here or the, the context is speaking of hypocritical judgment within the church or within the brotherhood. Avoiding a rash condemning spirit is what it's talking about here. Not, not, judging, not judging right from wrong or discerning right from wrong. It's talking about a, a hypocritical judgment or a rash condemning judgment within the church. These verses don't imply that all judgment within the church is wrong. 
But a judgment within the church without the law of love is wrong. We're called to judge doctrine. We're called to judge teachers or, or false prophets to discern. We're called to judge ungodliness, to discern ungodliness from godliness within the church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I think we're familiar with this, somewhat familiar with this account. Verse 1 says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. So there was a, uh, a blatant immorality happening in the church here. It wasn't even in hiding. It says it's reported commonly. We know about it. It's, it's commonly known. Paul is telling them, as if we read on through here, he tells them to remove this sin, remove the sinner from the church. This can have no part in the church. That's judgment. That's judging. It's discerning godliness from ungodliness. To have no part with it. Verse 5 to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Allow Satan, who is the author of pain and sickness, to have his way with this man. Allow the consequences of this immoral life, whatever, whatever comes along with that, allow that, let's allow that in his life so that hopefully it can draw him back to God. It's redemptive. Now look at verse 12 and 13. For what have I to do, I'm sorry, for what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God, without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. What Paul is saying here is, it is the church's responsibility to pass disciplinary judgment for those within the church but have no right to judge those outside of the church. So within the church, we do have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to discern, to remove sin, to judge within the church, redemptively. Worldly judgment is different. Back in Romans 13, it describes the civil government as the powers that be says the powers that be are ordained of God. This does not mean the powers that be are blessed of God. It means God has set this up as an order in the world. It doesn't mean that they're blessed or have God's blessing over what they're doing, but they are set up as an order in the world. Verse 4 in Romans 13 says, The government is a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. God, in other words, God has given permission to the judges of the state to execute judgment against those that break the law. This permission is given only to those who are part of the world, not to those who are part of the kingdom of God. It goes on to say in Romans 13 here, if you obey them, you have no reason to fear them. 
If you don't obey them, they have the right and they have the authority and the responsibility to punish. That is the God-ordained powers that be, the civil government. From these two examples in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of judgment within the church and Romans 13, judgment of civil authority, we can see God has clearly set up order. There's order, there's judgment, there's things that need to happen. The church is to judge and discipline their own. The world is to judge and discipline as well. The difference between the church's judgment and the world's is this. The church's judgment is based on the law of love and the purpose is redemption. Scripture says we are to recompense no man evil for evil. Avenge not ourselves. God says vengeance is mine, I will repay. The law that the, that the Christian within the kingdom of God is called to is different than the kingdom of the world. The, the church is called to redemption in our judgment, in our discerning. The civil government's judgment is based on retribution or uh, punishment and condemnation. So Christians decide matters within the kingdom of God of a spiritual transgression. The government decides matters of civil transgression. And the interesting part is, if a member of the kingdom of God breaks the civil law, He'll come under the judgment of both. The judgment of the church and the judgment of the civil authorities. So that's what the Bible says. But what does Jesus' example show? What example does Jesus give us in in judging or getting involved in civil judgments? I have four examples I'd like you to turn to. The first one is found in Luke 12, verse 13 and 14. This is a very short account. I'll look at the examples and then we'll go back and uh, compare them a little bit. Luke 12, 13 and 14. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Jesus refused to judge in this case. He refused the role of judge between these brothers. Back a few chapters to Luke chapter 9, verse 51 through 56. Luke 9:51 And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem and when his disciples James and John saw this they said Lord wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did 
But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Stop reading there. James and John wanted to bring judgment on these people for not receiving them. And Jesus said, the Son of Man didn't come to, didn't come to destroy. I came to save. He's saying from the world's point of view, where the focus is justice and punishment, the disciples may very well have been right. Bringing condemnation and retribution upon these people from a civil perspective That was probably the thing to do. We can understand that. But Jesus said that's not the way the kingdom of God operates. He says, I didn't come to destroy people. I came to save them. It's not the place for the kingdom of God to administer that punishment. Now turn to John chapter 8. This is the account of the woman who was caught in adultery. It says, caught in the very act. There was no doubt. And the leaders brought, brought her to Jesus and said, what should happen? And Jesus makes it clear the kingdom of God is separate from the civil government. John 8, verse 10 and 11. This is jumping in at the end of the story, but I think you're familiar enough with it. John 8, verse 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The kingdom of God is different. And I'll I'll go back and explain these a little bit more. You don't need to turn to this one, but in John chapter 2, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he comes to the temple and finds them using the temple as a stockyards. There's animals in there, there's money changers, and it's a zoo. And you know the account of what he does. He takes cords and he drives them out of the temple. That doesn't line up with the other accounts that I was reading. That is judgment. That is administering disciplinary action. What's the difference? Is it not consistent or can't we look at, this, at the example of Jesus' life here or what? Let's look back at these examples. In, in Luke 12, where he was asked to be a judge between the inheritance. Is this a spiritual matter or a civil matter? It's a civil matter. Jesus said, I'm not going to be a judge in that matter. The kingdom of God has no business in that. In Luke 9, the purpose of the disciples that that they wanted to bring down fire from heaven on these Samaritans who wouldn't receive them was to administer judgment and punishment Again, that's not the purpose of the kingdom of heaven in the world. The kingdom of God is not to bring punishment. In John chapter 8, where this woman was brought to Jesus, the leaders were not bringing her to him as religious leaders or shepherds of her soul. 
They were bringing her to Jesus as civil authorities, saying the law, the civil law says she needs to be stoned. What do you say? And without saying it, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven doesn't judge on a civil level. We don't have any part of this. He says, I don't condemn you. He offers forgiveness. We also know that Jesus saw her heart. Now look at in John 2, when Jesus came and drove out the money changers. This is not a civil matter. This is a matter between man and God. This is a matter of an offense of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, this is not how my house is. It says, my house is to be a house of prayer. It is the kingdom of God's job, position, responsibility to use, to pass disciplinary judgment in this case. Redemptively helping them to realize this is not how we treat the house of God. Do you see the difference in each of these? Why Jesus responded the way he did? I kind of let my imagination go with that. The case of the woman in adultery, if that instance would have been in 1 Corinthians 5, where we read about that the man who was with the immorality there, if she would have been unrepentant in the church, I have no doubt the response would have been totally different. If the church leaders had brought her, saying, this is the case, she's not repentant, that a totally different matter. And Jesus wouldn't have said, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. He, it, it would have been something that would have had to be dealt with. I hope I'm not being too confusing in that. Jesus is going to make two appearances on earth. The first one was to bring hope and to bring an opportunity of salvation to mankind. And we know that's happened. There's another appearance that he is going to make. And that is going to be to judge the earth. To judge man according to our acceptance of that salvation. According to our works. Revelation chapter 20. Your name will be in the book or will not be in the book. And that is the judgment that God will give us. Jesus' example shows us these two things. Our judgment and discipline can only occur within the kingdom of God and must be redemptive. That is the responsibility of the kingdom of God, of which you are a citizen. Judgment on a civil level is not the responsibility of the kingdom of God. In closing, I'd like to try to summarize this. Our request to be excused from jury duty must be done in the most respectful way. We are appealing to a government that God has set up, God has ordained and given authority, given permission to implement justice. And we are called to obey them as long as it does not contradict the kingdom of God. The Bible teaches a separation between the two kingdoms that cannot be mixed. An earthly kingdom to judge civilly 
a kingdom of God to judge within the church. Jesus taught by example that the kingdom of God is redemptive rather than punishing. The principle of separation between these two kingdoms needs to be applied consistently. It covers our voting. It covers holding office, political involvement, (coughs) protesting. It covers any situation where the church rubs shoulders with the world. If we do request to be excused for religious reasons, we need to make sure we're consistent in every other area of our life. So some questions that you need to ask yourself are this. Do my business dealings, my attitudes, my responses, and what I say reflect that conviction I claim to hold? Does my regard for the law reflect what I claim my convictions are? Is my social life, my entertainment, my recreation, does that reflect what I claim my convictions are? Am I being consistent in all things? As we enjoy the privileges of earthly citizenship, I believe we also need to be subject to the responsibilities of earthly citizenship as long as conscience allows. Sobering thought is this. The future of another human being is hinging on the decision of a jury. And if you didn't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Our testimony is either enhanced by our non-conformed and totally non-resistant lifestyle or it's destroyed by the lack of it. We cannot pick and choose. As Christians and as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, all of our decisions and our reactions and our responses need to be made through the lens of the kingdom of God. If you're able to, would you kneel for prayer?